What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to the Triple Deke podcast. We don't have a name for this yet, so please submit some names to us. Uh, I'm here with my co-host, Josh Linsenberg. Josh, how are you doing? Doing great. Happy to be with you on this fine Tuesday afternoon. Likewise. We have an amazing guest today. Josh, would love for you to intro who we're, who we're talking to today. Yeah, we got a real special guest today, a three-time Canadian national athletes and stick handling specialist, an internet sensation known for his epic hockey content, Pavel Barber. Pavel, welcome to the podcast. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for having me on, boys. Dude, it's been been, uh, a little while since me and you have talked. The first thing I want to ask you is, how did you get the name Pavel? And what is your real name for the people that don't know you for anything other than Pavel? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so Pavel is my, my favorite player, Pavel Datsuk. That's what it was kind of named after. So my real name is Brandon, and I started making YouTube videos compiling kind of rare footage that made Datsuk the great player that he is, like showing instances of brilliance that didn't end up on highlight reels of him, but a channel called Brandon Barber that was all Datsuk highlights. So when I branched off and wanted to do my own thing with just me uh, running the thing, I needed a name for it, so I put Pavel in a placeholder, and Google Plus didn't let me change it after that because I guess I had changed it twice before and I maxed out my. Uh, well, so you had to it. Yeah, I was stuck with it. I didn't even want that name; like I didn't like it, but uh, it stuck, and now I I definitely like it now. <laughs> do most people call you Pavel, or is that, do people call you Brandon still? Like even friends. It's funny, like neither. So people call me Barber, like everywhere pretty much so it's like uh, Brandon only my mom and my sister call me like, even my dad just called me like boy so it's just like uh everyone knows me as barber barbs any variation of that uh some people call me Pavel now too but almost no one calls me Brandon <laughs> all right barber all right let's uh let's jump let's go back to childhood would love to hear about your youth did when you were when you were younger how did you get into hockey? Were you always a kid that was playing? Were you playing other sports? Were you super skilled at player? I know that now you're about as elite as it gets, but would love to hear how that kind of path was for you to get to where you are right now. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, I started kind of early, I guess, when I was five, um, playing, playing hockey. And for some reason, I was playing with six-year-olds back then because there wasn't enough spots, I guess, for five-year-olds. Um, so started skating when I was four, played hockey when I was five. Uh, I wasn't that good, obviously my first year, I don't think anyone is. I think I got good a lot quicker because of the outdoor rinks. I would go like almost every day. I just got addicted. I'd chase my brother around. I remember one day we were playing tag. I was chasing him around and I fell face first and split my chin in half. Um, so I was pretty competitive even when playing tag. Uh, but I just loved it. I love watching the game. I was just uh, really passionate about it, but I was the kid who played every sport. I just, I was the kid who loved sports. I was playing uh, baseball. I was playing hockey, hockey, uh, roller hockey, a lot of tennis, uh, cycling, and I was big into running as well as a young kid. So I was like the guy who was like, I could never stick to one sport. I just kind of loved them all. hundred percent. And then did you from there, and this was in Toronto, right? for people yeah. that don't know where you're from so, was, so you grew up in Toronto and then did you ever go from playing hockey did you play major midget did you try and pursue it did you go what was the highest level that you went played at 
Yeah, the highest level was AAA. And then it was like at a, a time where I was deciding what I was going to do with my life. So right around the time I was like 18, um, I had been getting offers to play field hockey for Team Ontario and Team Canada because I had randomly picked up that sport, which is the, one of the weirdest sports I've ever picked up. Did, I don't even did, like it anymore. Yeah, how did that even happen? I, yeah, it was weird. I, I played uh, in a high school tournament just because I it was a free get out of school uh, card and uh, <laughs> I can get out of school I'm, I'm gonna take it so I played and I did really well there was the team Ontario scout there he's like hey come play with us and I was like no nah, I like the sport stupid like I hate it and <laughs> eventually he came to me and he's like dude you can go far you can make 8,000 a year playing for team Ontario next year and I'm like 8,000 as a young kid I was like let's go like I'll, I'll play this <laughs> sport so I tried it out so it started off kind of as like a you know, me just like uh, making money thing, but it materialated to me eventually, like two years trying out for Team Canada, didn't make it. And then the, by the third year made it. And that's when I shit my whole life up and uh, pursued field hockey. So at 18, I was like all in for field hockey um, and packed up everything at age 21 when I finally made the team and moved out to Vancouver to play for the national team. So you stopped playing ice hockey once you started going hard into field hockey? Pretty much like I played under 21 AAA, but I played like, you know, 20 games a year or something. It was just to keep playing for fun. Like it's not like it sounds like a high league. It's not like a, it's not a great league, to be honest. It was like sporadic skill level, but just so that I could play, but not have to like commit to like a full season because I just couldn't with the field hockey. And how how big is a, of a sport is field hockey in Canada? Like, where what's the the trajectory of that after playing on the national team? Really low. I mean, it's not a popular sport at all. And actually, in North America, it's just thought of as a woman's sport because it's very popular on the female side. Um, okay. But it's like nothing here. But then you go out to like anywhere outside of North America, and they call it hockey. Like in Australia, in Germany, uh, obviously India, Pakistan. Netherlands like that's hockey they don't even call it field hockey it's crazy and it's one of the biggest sports in the world like in terms of how many fans watch it and play it but here we would never know that myself included I'm like what is the sport who plays this like who cares but outside of North America it's, it's huge so the opportunities like you know we'd go to some tournaments and stuff like that and get paid like a lot of money to play in like if they're having a big tournament in India or or something like that just because it's a huge sport over there wow and were you going and playing in these different countries with team Canada yep yeah so I went on a couple tours one to Argentina and then the other to New Zealand so really really cool uh That's there cool. and the, the other ones were more local but yeah, it was it was awesome getting paid to like travel the world and, and play a sport and, and challenge yourself. It was as you would you would know, right? It's it's such a, a cool journey. It's a great experience. Where for you as a player, when you're playing field hockey, are you super, super skilled? Are you like the guy that on the team that has the hands and I'm sure there's similar dynamics there to being on ice? What kind of what kind of uh, player were you for the field hockey league? I'm I'm the Paul Bizanet of field hockey. No, you're uh, not. No, I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. I I was on on the scale, and you have to remember, I didn't pick up a field hockey stick until I was like 16, 17 years old. I I didn't touch the stick. So this weird stick that comes up to your belly button. It's got like a blade that's the size of like my fist on it, and you can only shoot right handed. 
it's like weirdest sport ever. So I was no joke, one of the worst players on team Canada, for sure. The only reason I played on that team was my fitness level. Like, you know, I could run, I could, I could like get into contests. I could be good on defense, getting there and back quick. If my fitness wasn't top tier on that team, I, I was not making it. Cause I was fundamentally one of the worst like players, even stick handling wise, like, or like a whole different approach. <laughs> It's hard to believe that. Yeah. How does or Josh go ahead? No, I just want to sort of shift over to you know content creation, post floor uh, field hockey. Excuse me. When did you sort of know you wanted to start creating content? Yeah, I think uh, it was one of those things. It was in between my field hockey career, and what happened was we were getting nine hundred thousand dollars a year from the own the podium. Uh, fund to kind of fund our athletes and our tours and all this stuff on the podium stripped away a hundred percent of that money. So we went from close to a million dollars in funding to zero dollars. So yeah. my funding got slashed quite considerably and I needed to get a job in between that. I applied for a job at an ice hockey rink was lucky enough to get it. And as I was teaching in the middle of doing that, I would make fun videos, putting my phone up against like a milk crate and just do shootout videos with my buddy. It was not planned. It wasn't like, I'm going to go hard at this YouTube thing. There was no aspiration of that whatsoever. It was a side gig for me and then some fun on the side. We put it up on YouTube. It got some good traction, did a couple more videos. Instagram had just introduced 15 second videos at that time. So I was lucky in timing. We put out a few videos there. They were getting good, uh, you know, good engagement and stuff. And then I started to believe like, you know, this could materialize in something, this can be something. And then once I started to realize how to monetize it and grow it, then I was like, okay, I can allocate more time to it. And eventually uh, when I quit field hockey, cause I was just like done with that sport. I was like, I can go full steam at being a hockey instructor and a content creator. Mm. Wow. So in when you're starting out and you're just posting stuff for fun and you start to see like that traction that you're getting, what was the moment for you that you were like, oh shit, I want to actually do this more. Like I want to put more energy into this. Yeah. Good question. I think the, the big thing for me was when I was engaging with my fans and like, uh, or, or at that time, just people who stumbled across my video, not even fans and just, just talking to them and listening to them and, them giving me positive feedback and me loving like talking to them. I, I always love that that part of content creation is reaching an audience and actually like engaging with them. Just I was enjoying the ride of going through the notifications and like if someone had a tip, like me typing them back, like this is what helped me uh, type thing. So that I think that was the one thing that really led me to believe that I really wanted to pursue this is that it didn't seem like work. And I look forward to putting content out because making content is fun when you love doing it and then engaging and maybe having some positive influence on other people. That's awesome. So you're building that community, you're getting in touch with the fans and you're hearing that you're actually making a, a difference in some people's day-to-days. That's so sick. Yeah. Uh, Josh, feel free to like, course correct if i ever run off <laughs> no no, no. I, you're all you're you're all good you know you guys are all pals so it's great seeing you to catch up like this but you know i want to talk about your success you know you went from zero and now you have you have over six hundred thousand followers now on instagram plus what you got going on youtube and i'm sure you got a whole bunch of other stuff going on you know snap talks tiktok 
face tweet. You know, what, whatever, whatever kids are up to these days. Um, how did you just like sort of build on that? Like, you know, what's your advice to those, you know, there's plenty of people. We talk about this all the time. We got a guy on our content team who goes down to Disney all the time and he, JT's like, Oh, you got, you got to blog it, man. Like you got to post on TikTok. Like you'll, you'll make money and like, you know, you, you'll go way, way up in, in life. Um, what's your advice to, you know, someone who's listening and um, sort of hesitant to create content, even if it's non-hockey, let's say it's about their job. I've seen TikToks about people scooping ice cream and now the guy's got like millions and millions of followers. So what yeah. would your advice be for someone who's hes- hesitant to create content? Yeah, I, I would say, you know, put yourself out there and, and, and do it for the right reasons first. Like I, I think that example of a guy scooping ice cream, I can almost guarantee you he did that just out of sheer enjoyment of doing it first and did not expect to get the following he got. So I think that's the key thing is like to be really good at something, you have to love it really deeply. You have to have a genuine passion about it to do it well, because you got to be working overtime hours and putting in extra and, and you can really easily do that when you genuinely love something. So I think it's like, find something you really love and then find a way to help other people in the process. And then you can maybe build on that and don't get discouraged when, you know, things flop, like things are going to fail. You're going to have bad ideas or maybe video you thought will do well and it didn't do well. Don't let stop you from keep going. Cause like, you know, there's so many stories out there for people who, you know, write a bunch of books and they all get, uh, you know, denied by people. And then the 51st publisher says yes. And that's like the Harry Potter series right there, which, you know, it's like, you just got to keep putting yourself out there, believe in yourself and uh, not get phased by things when they don't go as, as planned. It's such a, it's such a good point that there's a quote that I'm not sure where I heard this, but it's you're one post away from your life completely changing. Yeah. And if you don't put yourself out there, if you just, if you, if you get that, you face that rejection, because everybody has those posts that are, if you are posting stuff in anything, you're going to have moments where it's not going to hit, it's going to flop, it's not going to connect. And if you, if you feel that rejection and are like, hey, I'm going to shut it down because my self-worth or how, how I feel about myself is wrapped up in the engagement that I get, and you stop, you're one post away, that next post that you could put out, if you just overcome that, could be the post that really shifts everything for you. So yeah. I completely, completely agree with that. Yeah. It's- yeah, I, yeah, I think it's important, like what you were saying there, uh, JT, it's like, try not to wrap your identity solely around how your content performs, like always remember, like you're, you're a person first, and you know, your identity has nothing to do with how well your videos do. Um, and always, always remembering that, because I know for, for young kids, like I watched that documentary, um, The Social Dilemma on Netflix. Oh, and yeah. there's so many kids like they're wrapping their whole self-worth and identity around how their right. content does what what people are engaging with you and stuff and and just remember that has nothing to do with you you can absolutely pursue it hope it does well keep building on that but just remember that's like not who you are and like that doesn't define how much you're worth if, if things don't go well <laughs> i i you know, I don't know if you guys seen the show Black Mirror or are familiar with it, uh, the dystopia show on Netflix. There's an episode on there that 
um, it takes the world and everything evolves around how many likes you have. The higher amount of likes you have on you know, Instagram, Twitter, whatever, the higher you up in society, the less likes you have, you know, the less you're able to get in society. And it was just crazy because I see it every day. People are like, yeah. you know, like I want, you know, 200 yeah. likes on my recent posts or, you know, mm-hmm. likes don't, you know, like the stats shouldn't matter. It should matter about your growth over yeah. time and, you know, who you are as a person. And I, I just think we need more of that and less of, you know, oh, you know, I only got 46 likes, you know, less of the stats. Based and I, I think that, uh, and I think that Brandon's, uh, Barbara's a great example of doing that, of not doing something for the engagement and for the likes and for the admiration, but doing something because you genuinely like it. And then it seems like it's counterintuitive to do something just because you like it. But it's actually the way to go because then you don't worry about the engagement and then you're, you act more naturally and more authentic, which resonates in your content and therefore generates that engagement. So yeah. it actually, you doing, doing something for yourself because you enjoy it is actually more beneficial than doing something because you think it might work. So it yeah. seems like it's backwards, but it actually is the way to do it. And your assessment of doing that, just because like you said, you started something that you wanted to do because it was fun. And now it's snowballed into a whole brand and the lifestyle that you've built. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't have said it better. That's that's exactly it, man. I think that so so a great way to transition with that is now that you've had now that you've built the platform online, you've not only done that, but you've taken it into real life, which is something that a lot of people have trouble doing. Because a lot of people can build brands online, they can build a page but actually getting it to be something that people recognize in real life is a big challenge for a lot of creators. You've taken your brand and parlayed it into a camp, which is how me and you know each other. I worked at his camp when it was in Arizona. And uh, also into your own training facility in Vancouver, which I'm not sure if it is still going on or not, but it was for a, a, a long period of time. How did, how did that process go for you from being somebody that was like, all right, I'm an internet creator who's a skill specialist online into this is something I want to do in real life so that people that are online can see me in person? Yeah, yeah. I think that was like the main thing I wanted to do before the whole social media stuff started. So what actually happened there was my social media platform ended up just being the best source of advertising for those camps uh, or, or anything related to my actual business. And they're obviously tied in because it's exactly what I'm doing on the social media stuff ties into what I do uh, for work. So it kind of gelled uh, quite well there. And I did make sure to kind of strategically do that when I'm putting out content, making sure the vast majority of stuff is quite on brand. And you know the points that I'm pointing out there are stuff that I would cover in camp. And, and, and trying to understand too, like, as an instructor, what's what separates me from this guy or that guy or the other guy? And, you know, trying to make that separation between me and other coaches. Uh, and I think for me, one of the, the big things is being transparent, being really simple in terms of like what words I use when I am describing things and then getting people to think differently about things like uh, in terms of like creativity in hockey. Like yep. we had the big 
mindset around all creativity is the same. So, you know, if you're going on, on a breakaway and you do a backflip and then land it and then shoot, that's creative. So it's going between the legs, but those two things aren't the same at all. Like the backflip is a useless thing. I don't know why anyone would do it. Whereas the fake shot pulled between the legs has a tactical approach to it. Yeah, yep. exactly. So it's like getting people to realize like useful creativity versus useless creativity. Don't call all creativity one thing and then systematically try to understand how to apply certain moves to a game versus other areas where you wouldn't want to apply that skill to make them better players. And that's been my whole like brand building thing is trying to point out not just what we're doing, but how you do it. How do this is literally the, that framework of that conversation where not all creativity is equal. I love the way that you said that too, because that's not only just for like your on ice play, but something that we are really trying to do at Triple Deke. And one of the reasons that I really started is because I think that creativity needs to be celebrated in the game. But I also think that, like you said, not all of it is equal and there's things that are unnecessary and there's things that are actually beneficial. And the example that I was just thinking is like in the, in the game off the ice, you know, posting certain videos or vlogging or creating content or wearing certain clothing or listening to different types of music for individual players, some of it actually is tactical because it can make them a better player. It makes them feel more empowered and therefore feel more skilled on the ice. At other times, it's not useful and it's not beneficial. But I think that the, the hockey world as a whole, maybe I might be overgeneralizing a little bit, but it seems like the hockey world as a whole lumps all of that in as either really good or really bad. It's so, <laughs> yeah. not, it's so not black and white. It's so much more gray where there's, okay, maybe in this situation it actually didn't work, but in another situation it really did. And I think that that's the same thing as on the ice in times Maybe a toe drag is a stupid play because you don't have an angle and you're going to get crushed and you don't, and it's not the thing. There's a guy there that's a great and easy open play. But in other times when you don't have the move, when you don't have something to do and you can create space for the toe drag, it can be the right play. And so yeah. I love the way that you look at that as like, it's not all equal. Let me teach the way that it's when it is the right application, when it is the right use, because creativity as a whole, in my, in my perspective, needs to be allowed way more in the game. Absolutely. And it's like, I, I always use the term selective mindset. So, and it's something that's like very uh, applicable to all fields, but specifically looking at hockey, the selective mindset would have you say something like that move will get you hit. Uh, mm -hmm. What all they're doing there, like we'll just keep using the toe drag as an example, is they're using an example where they saw a guy do a toe drag and got hit. So they're just taking in affirming evidence and then they totally ignore all refuting evidence. All those times that NHL pro players use the toe drag effectively, let's just ignore those because those don't support my claim. And let's just focus on what does. And it's so lazy. It's so simplistic and it's so inaccurate. And, you know, when a guy pulls off, I mean, you've seen this in comment sections, a guy pulls off a move. It's what a shitty goalie. Oh, that was awful defending. It's not like well-timed move, good fake. It's it, There's always, it's a, always a, a very negative. negative spin. It's always negative. 100%. Always, I completely agree with that. I see that a thousand times a day in the comments. Brandon, how do you deal with uh, that, those negative comments or when people are leaving 
spam or leaving hate on your on your page because I'm sure you have to deal with it a lot as do we. What's your take on it for anybody that is posting and does receive negative feedback? How do you feel about going about it? Yeah, I think uh, I'll, I'll tell you right off the bat, like when it first started happening as a guy who's not used to a lot of people, you know, talking about you or analyzing stuff, it affected me quite a lot at the start. Now I'm very unfazed by doing it for so many years. I think my approach would be, or to tell people their approach should be, is like, don't take it personal. It's never about you. They don't know you personally. You know, a lot of these times when people are saying this stuff online, they would never say that to you if they just met you in person. And we all know that for a fact, like how often do you meet someone randomly and they talk shit about you in person? Like it never happened. So a lot of people have using that anonymity factor. But I think for me, one thing that's actually been very effective is kind of just pointing out how flawed their thinking is uh, and almost like making their comments like laughable. So, mm. you know, you, you know, like the whole poke check thing is like a meme on my page yep. where it's like a, a laughable joke where it's like any, you know, Patrick Kane dangles and he's within poke check range and he scores. It's like, should a poke check got a yep. poke check. It's a guarantee. And let's ignore all the times you poke check and the blocker drops and you, you score over the shoulder um so it's like you just kind of make fun of people for that and like just point out like how flawed that is like obviously not like bullying them but just pointing out like how flawed that is and it's just not as simple as that our game happens in real time we don't have the luxury of looking at a slow-mo retail uh, replay from an alternate angle and analyzing the game and shifting defenders into ideal situations like our game is not uh like that it's very random and there's going to be plays where we don't have the right angle. We make a bad read, we get burned. And then we learn from that. So it's got to be kind of approached more, more along those lines. Absolutely. And I want to talk about now your training center, uh, which I think it's absolutely incredible. Uh, there needs to be more private training centers out there in the world. I remember as a child, you know, I played baseball growing up and I went to a training center and it definitely helped me, but you, you know, I, did my research on you as as any broadcaster does before an interview and you know you talked about on your page how you know in some of the more public training spaces people make fun of you I dealt with that too when I was a kid I mean I I can really relate with you on on that and I want to ask why is private training so good for athletes in your opinion yeah, I mean, private training is so important because it's number one, you connect really strongly with the individual and then you really uh, like in the moment are able to give them immediate feedback. Uh, good, good immediate feedback and, and quick like correction in the time can save you so much time and heartache um, and obviously a lot of hours and, and, and bad habit formation. So if you have a trainer who knows uh, you know, the progression, how to properly learn this, not rushing the process, trying to run to the finish line. And, you know, you skip past a bunch of steps, which you'll, you'll pay for later on, I guarantee you, um, is you're able to really systematically go into their skills, see, see where they are within that skill, and then, you know, take them back to lay that proper foundation so that they can consistently build up. Uh, the, the main thing I always tell people it's like, you know, say you're, you're shooting top shelf. Don't celebrate when you hit one top shelf. Celebrate when you hit nine out of 10, when you hit like four for five or 21 for, 
for 22. Like celebrate when you're consistent, when you know within your shot where you went right, where you went wrong and how you can fix that. Because if we build consistency in our game, then we're going to get consistent results. Like anyone can get lucky on a few. We're trying to build that mind-body connection where they're going through the, the thing and they're making the trial and error process and they're understanding what they got to change themselves so that when they leave me and their training session, they still have things to take away with them so that they can train on their own and get better. They don't need me by their side 100% of the time. It's almost like a, it's almost like a personal trainer. I mean, it literally is exactly like a personal trainer versus going to a group workout. If a per, when you have a personal trainer, they're teaching you how to move your body efficiently and teaching you how to do it with the proper foundation and the proper mechanics, rather than when you go to a group fitness class, it's like, they're trying to get you to work out and have like a good sweat and like, you know, feel good leaving it, but you're not, you're not really adjusting the way that you're actually moving that weight. And I feel like it's similar in a, in an overall practice with a coach running a practice for a team versus private training, you're able to get that like actual foundation and form and mechanics worked on where you couldn't do that as much in a group, in a group setting. Absolutely. hundred percent. Yeah. And it's, it's one of those things like I always, uh, you know, I do everything from private training, small group training, which is like five or so kids or, or 10, and then you do team training and, and you got to be able to do everything. And obviously within a team training setting, you just can't get too individual with it. You do have to get everyone moving, getting the reps in, getting the touches, getting the flow, so yeah, you give up on a sort of that, but if you're a coach, it's like finding that balance where it's like, you know, work on systems, work on team flow drills, all that stuff, power play, two on ones, one V ones, all that good stuff, but make time for the individual skills as well. Um, you know, where the guys are able to individually work on some weaknesses or maybe turning some strengths into bigger strengths, like, you know, finding the time and the balance to, to do that. So I think it's definitely beneficial. Obviously, private training for, for many is a luxury because it can get expensive. But, uh, you know, even doing a, a few sessions of that with a good trainer can make a, a big difference. Yeah. And I want to talk about now the mental side of hockey here. You say you take it very seriously. I, I know JT and I also take mental health very seriously. We both meditate every day. Uh, JT does ice baths, which is crazy. And I... I'm going to try it out one day when I'm out in LA. Um, why is the mental side of hockey so important to you? Yeah, I think just, just in life, really, it's so important to me. I, I struggled with uh, pretty bad anxiety growing up as a kid. We didn't know what it was either. So that was the big thing for me is you're just like, oh, I feel weird. I feel like yeah. stupidly nervous and I don't even know what's scaring me right now. Um, so for me, I think a large part of that is I would hate for another kid to go through that um or if they are going through that currently how can we help them understand what it is and take measures to ensure that it doesn't overtake them so like I did extensive research on you know how anxiety builds up like the amygdala and how there's the fight or flight response and how we get to this inappropriate level of anxiety by kind of letting our mind wander and you know not watching the thoughts going on in our head so if we're constantly thinking about like negative things happen and we've all had that experience where we just think about oh my god what if I just fell off this cliff or what if I had stumbled down these stairs or whatever if your mind actually goes through and plays that like false reality in its head 
it's not able to distinguish between the truth, like what's actually going on versus the story that's going on in your head. So it is going through whatever made up uh, scenario you're putting in, in your head there. So like little tips like that, where you tell kids, like, it's like, you know, you can control the thoughts in your head, just be mindful, anything from like meditation to just watching the mind, seeing where it goes, trying not to live too much in the past or too much to the future, uh, try to live in the present moment and, and find that way. It makes a big difference, obviously in life, number one, uh, but more, uh, more into hockey, it, it will make you a better hockey player. You know, if you're less anxious out there, if you're not second guessing yourself, if you're looking forward to challenges, you're going to be a better hockey player. Your development will uh, progress at a faster rate than other people. So I think it's for that, those two reasons, um, mental health it has to be at the forefront uh, of your training, uh, of your, at least, uh, you know, your approach to the game. If you find it slipping or you feel like, you know, things are falling apart, really pay attention to that because that will have a negative effect on your physical abilities over time if it weighs on you. Absolutely. 100%. I think it's such a, I think it's so critical, as important to me, as important as training in the gym is working on your mindset and going through and, and seeing how you're feeling and the way that you're looking at different situations. And I, I even think that, I know that teams have like a sports psychologist on, uh, on their staff, but I actually even think that like having players go to therapists consistently, even if they're not, even if it's not like um, prescriptive, more preventative, like, I think that even having guys go when they're feeling good and just, like, talking to somebody and, like, keeping up on that is so beneficial to people, so much more than uh, it's known right now or is talked about right now. And I think that that's something that in the next 10 years we'll start to recognize more, really, how big of a, a role the mindset really does play on your sport. Absolutely. Yeah, and I, I, I think the, the one thing I always tell people is, like, think of yourself, like, uh, when you're working out, you're building muscle, like you can, you can see results. Like you can see the muscles getting bigger or not. Same in hockey. When you're training, you can see the physical results of your edge work training, your hand training, your shot speed. You can quantify and measure that. The mental stuff you can't. So there's no way for me to look at you right now and me give you a score of where you are in your, your mental health. And yep. same with you to me. So it's, it's one of those things as humans, I think we're we're so obsessed over things we can see and quantify and statistically analyze and, and measure. And with the mental state, you just can't do that. So a lot of people might think it's not as important because we can't see it, measure it, compare it. But it's one of those things where, like you said, it is just as important and it will have an impact on your physical abilities anyway. So it's, it's gotta be uh, at the forefront of your training for sure. Absolutely. Totally agreed. And I want to talk. Totally agree. Oh, right, go ahead. Go ahead Josh. You wanted to say something. All right. I think, I think we, uh, there's a couple more things. What do we want to get to next? Yeah. Let's talk about you working with the NHL and uh, some of their players. Uh, you know, you've obviously been very successful. You've worked with the biggest and baddest athletes there is in the NHL. First question I got about that is, you know, out of all the NHL athletes you've worked with, has there been any moment, you know, because we're all humans in the end, is there any moment where you're like, oh, my God, I'm, like, working with blank right now on ice? 
Like, is has yeah. there been a moment for you like that? Yeah, I think uh, John Lynn Taves probably um, was one of those things. And uh, I mean, just getting the message from him for the first time, uh, it was actually through Instagram, asking me to help him with some some stick handling stuff to do off the ice uh, at the start Bet before we got on the ice. And, what's that? Sent you a DM? Yeah, I just DM'd me. It's, it's crazy, crazy world, right? So it's like, and it's on my Pavel Barber training account. Um, so yeah, it was, it was crazy. And you're like, checking you're like is this Jonathan Taves because he's obviously a guy I grew up watching a lot as a Canadian like idolizing and just like knowing how good a player he is especially me idolizing a player like Datsuk Jonathan Taves great 200 foot center very good with the puck great captain great success and stuff so getting the message from him obviously the immediate thing is like wow like amazing maybe a bit starstruck and then you, you go in person and you're just like, it's all business and, and that's got to be the approach. And, uh, you know, to his credit, he's very approachable and easy to work with. Like every, every guy I've worked with was, and you're just uh, not putting him on a pedestal. Right. It's like the job is about not, not realizing that they're like unreal athletes and telling them that it's there. They want to get a step further. Right. Jonathan Taves ha- wants to be, you know, at the level of like a Sidney Cosby or whoever is above him, right? So it makes no difference that he's elite or considered one of the top hundred players in the in the league. That's irrelevant. It's how do we make Jonathan Tage with his playing style uh, get a little bit better next year uh, in the areas that he fills that role on his team. So right when you get into that, I get pretty all business because I take it very seriously. But certainly that initial you know, moment of, wow, like John Lynn Taves, pretty cool. Like telling my dad about that too, because he's a big, a huge hockey fan. And he like gets pretty proud when I tell him stuff like that, for sure. (laughs) Do you have interest in, do you have any interest in ever being like a actual skills coach for a team? Or do you like the third party thing where you can kind of go and work with whoever that you want? I like the third party thing. It would be tough. I I would consider it. But the thing with working with a team is, it would restrict my schedule quite a bit, especially for me as a like trainer slash content creator. It, I think it would it would tie my hands a little bit there, but I, I think I do enjoy the third party thing, being able to work within different organizations, keep my travel schedule the way I want, uh, and stuff like that. But obviously, something I would have to think about because those those opportunities don't come around too much. <laughs> I actually think what you're doing right now is better than going and working with the team because you're working with the players that would be the ones that you want to work with when you're on the team, but you're also able to do everything yourself and you're in complete control of what you're doing. And like you said, you're able to create content that would be totally restricted if you were on a team. So I actually think you're doing it. I wouldn't recommend you to do anything else than what you're doing right now. I know I, I agree. And it's like those guys hiring you are hiring you for a specific reason. Yep. You know, them individually reaching out to you says a lot. It means, like, I'm ready. I want to learn from you. Like, I'm all ears. Let's go. So it makes my job easy that way for sure. Yeah. I want to ask about Josh. one guy currently in the NHL, probably, in my opinion, the king of stick handling. I got to ask about Connor McDavid. What are yep. your thoughts on him? You know, people compare him to Crosby and Ovechkin people say that he's going to do better than Crosby and Ovechkin where do you see his career uh sort of taken off as a Stanley Cup champion yeah I mean obviously the (laughs) the Oilers man 
if they could uh, go deep in the playoffs or something, man, they, they've had some struggles, but obviously with him leading the charge, Dreisaitl close behind as a, as a secondary role, um, you know, Stanley Cup, you know, obviously in the future, I, it's possible. Individually talking, he'll have the career that Crosby and Ovechkin uh, are having, if not better. Um, he's, he's absolutely in, in that realm. He's the, the new age Crosby. He's like, Crosby with a whole boatload of speed, not as good in the, the dirty areas. Like Crosby's unbeatable in those part protection grinding in the corners, but McDavid doesn't really have to be given his playing style quite different, but he is, he's changing the game. Uh, the way people look at training, the way people look at advantages and how to create advantages. Speed is always the number one advantage. I've always told people that it's like when you have speed, less is more right and you see it with mcdavid like he has crazy hands and he'll use some quick hands to beat guys but he doesn't have to all the time he can make one quick move one quick inside outside drive around you um and when he's carrying the puck doing a thousand crossovers at once he's not like overhandling the puck he's putting it to an area where he can see ahead of him scan his surroundings keep his feet motoring and just always keep that puck in a position to fly off to the backhand or, or forehand um he's a remarkable uh, and he's just just very smart he's his decision making so um like i can't, obviously can't say enough good things about him and watching oilers games between him and dry because dry titles like just uh kind of more like datsuk actually in that he's not a guy who will overbear you with speed but his playmaking abilities, even his curve pattern is like exactly identical to that and stuff. Uh, like that makes watching Oilers games for me is so fun. Yeah. Who's a, who's a, a player that you think is going to be a dark horse over the next little bit, a prospect that you think is going to be somebody that's going to really surprise a lot of people with their skill? I think Suzuki, uh, Nick Suzuki, and maybe not so much of a dark horse given his start to the season now but right. I was, was kind of I was telling my buddies about that before the season started just watching him develop over the years like you know this kid is going to be something special and like I was watching Patterson before he got into the league playing in the Swedish first league there and it was the same story like a, a Swede with good hands yeah will he be able to do that in the NHL it was the same with Barzell Barzell skating laps around the uh the zone when he enters playing for the Seattle Thunderbirds he won't do that in the NHL. The guy does it more now that he's in the NHL than he did there. He's like an anomaly. It's crazy. Same thing with Suzuki. Like he's a guy who he's very smart and his playmaking ability is like he's able to do it at the pro level because he, he knows how to make the right move in the right situation. He's got great vision. I really think he's going to develop into something uh, seriously special over the years. So. Uh, what what do you got that's coming up right now as we kind of wrap this up what do you got that you're working on right now that we can kind of keep a lookout for uh yeah I'm doing uh, a series where I'm basically going to backyard hockey rinks and showcasing some of the best outdoor rinks that uh, the world has to offer I'm restricted to Toronto obviously right now I'm not traveling at all but uh you know, I, I, I did that one crazy mansion one already. We went to one in Woodbridge, uh, Ontario, and I have a list of like 10 other ones. So it's like, that's the big thing. I got a film crew helping me out and we're trying to turn it into something. And it's 
something I'm really passionate about, and I think you can attest to it as a hockey player. We all love seeing cool outdoor rinks and understanding how they build and maintain it. Even if you're not going to do it yourself, um, it's just fun to see. Like it's like it's like home makeovers for hockey players. Yeah, is this, I was gonna say, is this like a is it going to be like an MTV kind of thing of the ODRs yeah. or ODRs of the house, the rinks in the house? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, it's like the, the aim of it is to number one, like entertain, like show people here's the rink, like how cool is this, and just aesthetically pleasing. But then number two. It's like hitting all the financial brackets. Like if you're at the high end, you can afford this stuff. Check out this video. Check out what these guys did versus like guys that, you know, you got very bare bones. You can still build a beautiful outdoor rink. It's going to be tougher, obviously, and you're going to be a slave to the weather without the pipes underneath. But there's a lot you can do that you can save yourself time and money and effort by doing it systematically. And I'm, I'm learning myself every video I do. I'm like, wow, you do it this way. Like, do you think it's better than this? And like, how do you scrape snow off? What tools do you use? Like all this stuff, it's, it's great to learn and hopefully helps other people along the way. Yeah. That's awesome. I'm super excited to see that. Yeah, very awesome. excited to see that. And I got one more question before we let you yep. go here. You know, people say, oh, I want to be the Jordan of basketball. I want to be the Gretzky of hockey. You know, I've heard it. Seriously, I've heard this. I want to be the barber of of stick handling. What does it mean <laughs> to you when you hear people say that? And if you ever have, because I, you know, I, I don't know if you really have heard that. Yeah, I say dream bigger, dream bigger, kid. Um, no, I I think it's it's obviously humbling whenever someone says something good about me uh, with my stick handling and stuff like that. It's it's awesome. Uh, and I think the main thing, it's awesome to see kids, see my videos, get inspired to put in more work. That, that was always the origin of it. It's like, if my videos can in some way inspire you to dream up like better stick handling skills for yourself, to think you're better than you gave yourself credit for. And if you put in the work, you can do it. That's wicked. And I think it's accomplishing that uh, pretty well right now uh seeing all the work kids are putting into stick handling and and all that and then like the other comment i get is like uh which i i love answering it because it, i think it's good for kids to hear or it's like uh you know why aren't you in the nhl type thing and it's like well yeah like i'm not nearly good enough right it's like you you gotta have like everything like elite skating uh edge work like all this stuff uh you know hockey iq and it's like telling kids that, you know, having hands obviously won't hurt you, but it just can't be it. That can't be the only thing. And the biggest thing people assume from me as a guy who specializes in stick handling is that I think stick handling is the most important thing, which is not at all what I believe. Skating is by far the most important part of the game. Without good skating, your hands are worthless. So it's like passing that on to kids, just know you gotta have really, really good skating, good IQ, good vision, and then you add hands on top of that, and then you're then you're really starting to get on to something. So just work on work on that foundation and, and build from there. I love it. Amazing. Awesome, bro. Amazing. It's been uh, it's been great talking to you. I really appreciate you coming on. Um, I would encourage anybody that listens to this to go and check out if they're obviously if they're not already following you. I think probably anybody that plays hockey is pretty close to following you. So if you haven't checked them out, go check them out. Brandon, Pavel, Barber. Uh, <laughs> great. It was great talking to you, brother. Um, and we really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, no worries, man. Hope your hope your podcast goes well, bud.
Thank you. Thanks, Brandon. And that's going to do it for episode three. Once again, that was stick handling specialist, Pavel Barber. As for us, make sure to give us a follow on Instagram at triple Deke and always make sure to smash that subscribe button to stay up to date on all things triple Deke podcasts for JT Barney and myself, stay safe and have an amazing day.